Uh, good morning. My name is Jim. I'm one of the pastors here at Journey. As Brian said, we're thrilled that you could be here this morning. If you're joining us online for the first time, we certainly hope it's not your last time. Uh, we do have a gift for every first-time guest, whether online or in-house in, in person. So uh, make sure you let us know you're here. Head out to that Connect card that Brian told you about. Uh, let us know you're here, and we'll make sure to get you a gift. Uh, I, before we, we jump into the message, I wanted to um, just qu quickly reference two weeks ago we had a talk about uh, coming back and returning um, to church and, and how we feel like this is the best thing uh, that people could do is to connect and re-engage in the life of their church with their family. Uh, I just wanted to follow up on that quickly because last week I wasn't here and say we're going to continue to talk about this. We, we want people connecting in relationships. So if you're sitting at home and you're not comfortable coming, we get that. This isn't us throwing pressure on you. Like if you're not here, you're not a part of it. We just want to, want to engage. So if you're sitting at home, engage with us. When the host reaches out this morning, let us know where you're watching from. Let us know what's happening in your life so we can pray for you. If you're here, engage with us. Let us know on that Connect card who you are. Find us. We're going to give action steps. We almost do every single week. Let us know what's happening in your life, how you're praying, what we can do to connect and engage with you. One of the worst things we've seen come out of the pandemic is isolation. It's people feeling alone and people feeling separated, having stepped out of their lives for a year and really not sure how to, how to kind of integrate and get back in, and we want to help you with that. So if you're here and you're in person, let us help. If you're online, let us help. If you're willing to take a step and you just need a little encouragement, let this be a little encouragement. I'd love to see you, even with a mask on. I look at your eyes. You have beautiful eyes. You have so many beautiful eyes. Love to see your eyes again. Uh, come back to church. We'd love to see you and love to have you. We're going to talk about Compassion Sunday. Uh, this is an organization some of you may have heard of, some of you may even support. Um, my wife and I do. I'm going to tell you our story in a little bit. But I wanted to, to start off and, and actually tell you an earlier story. Uh, years and years ago, I'm not that old, so I'm not going to tell you how many years ago, but I was a senior in high school. I had an opportunity to go on a missions trip to uh, Romania with uh, a few other churches that we were familiar with at the time. It was kind of my first experience out of our country and, and seeing what other countries could, could be like. And uh, to be honest, what war-torn countries looked like. Uh, I, I remember going, going and landing in Romania the first time and kind of stepping out of the airport. And it, it looked like what you imagine movies in movies and how they look like after a world war. I mean, it was just gray and everything looked burned and, 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 and desolate. And uh, we were greeted by soldiers with machine guns. And I was like, this is, I've only seen these in movies before. What in the world? It was a completely different world. Uh, we stayed at an orphanage and worked with an orphanage and a, a pastor there, and it was my first time getting to, to really see uh, poverty on a level that um, I, I'm sure is rampant throughout the world, but not rampant at least where I lived and in my hometown. And it, it changed me. I, I'd always encourage people to go on missions trips because good comes out of it. The good you're investing is fantastic, but everybody I've known that's gone on a missions trip comes back changed. When you get to see and you experience what, other, what it's like for, to live in other countries outside of our comfort zone, outside of, of how we've lived and how we've grown up and the things that we're accustomed to, it changes how you, you feel uh, and how you live and, and maybe the things you want to do with your life. That was one of the things that inspired me to get involved and to try to make a difference. And to be honest, that's, that's my hope for you this morning is that perhaps I could inspire you, persuade you, uh, I'll be completely honest, maybe even twist your arm a little bit, uh, to get involved, to, to do something. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm going to give you kind of my, my bottom line up front and even give, give you like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Here's what I want for every person today, whether you're online or you're in-house. If you're not sponsoring a child through Compassion today, I want you to go to the table in the back, find a packet, fill it out, turn it in, and sponsor a child. If you're online and you think, oh, I, I don't have to do that, I'm not there. One of the blessings of sitting at home online. Our host is going to share a link with you right now. I would like you to go out to that site, find a child, and sponsor a child. 
to get involved and to do something. And then here's, here's the get out of jail free card. If, if at any point through my talk, if at any point through the message today, if you're sitting at home and at any point you want to do that, you get up, you feel like, like I'm inspired even by what you said, you don't even have to get to the end. I didn't even want to be here anyway. I'm just going to go to the back and fill that out. If you fill that out and you turn it in, go home. Go have brunch. You get a check in the box for what happened at church today. It's the only time I'm giving you this get out of jail free card. Use it today. If you want to do that, head back right now. There's a table. Fill out that packet. Turn it in. Go to that website right now. Then you can close down. I don't care. That's the whole point of today's message. It's not for me. It's what we can do for, for people like this, for children like this, for, for those, for the least of these, as the Bible would say, as, as Scripture would teach us. And that's really my, my hope for you this morning. See, when I, when I think about what's happening in the world and, and really why we don't seem to be making that much of a difference, there's, there's kind of um, two things that, that come to mind, really. There, there's two problems that, that tend to, to show up when this comes up. And the first problem uh, is this. The first kind of issue that keeps us from really getting involved is in our world today, we have information overload. Right? We got these little phones in our pockets with, with, with so much information at a click of a button. It, it just seems like too much all the time. I mean, we're on social media and there's feeds from all around the world showing all the problems. I don't know that, that as, as people that we were meant to, to understand all of the problems in the world because I don't think we can, we can kind of emotionally understand it. I don't think we, we know how to process it and what to do with it. I mean, think back to our grandparents' generation. They wouldn't know what was happening in the world. They'd have to wait for the paper. Some of you, you don't even know what a paper is. They'd have to wait till the local paper covered a crisis, and that could take weeks. And then they would read it, and it's like, what do I do with that? We have it at the click of a button. We have more information. Think of this. We can go through more information in a week than our grandparents could have gone through in an entire lifetime. And so, you know, how many hurricanes? How many, how many tsunamis is this? How many, how many like, you know, mass shootings is this? It's just, it's just problem after problem after problem. And, and it gets to the place where it's like, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And then, then you tack on global poverty or a, a famine in, in Africa or, you know, what's happening in Guatemala. And it's like, I don't even know what to do. It's like information overload. Really, we find ourselves asking this question. What am I supposed to do about that? I'm one person. Like, I can't solve that problem. I don't, I don't know what to do about that. I, really, what kind of difference could I make? Look, what, what am I supposed to do with all of this? There's just so much. There's so much hurt and there's so much pain and there's, there's so many problems. I'm only one person. I can't be everywhere. I can't solve every problem. I mean, 100 years ago, they didn't have to worry about this. Most people didn't, didn't leave or didn't travel more than a few miles outside of their homes. And now in a click of a button, we know what's happening on the other side of the world. Like, what, what am I supposed to do? Without all of this, it's information overload. And we find ourselves asking this question all the time. I, what am I supposed to do about that? And, and then here's the, the next problem that, that I, I tend to see come up. And, and it's this, is that life, believe it or not, is expensive. Right? We have cars, and our cars, you know, your, your brakes fail, and you take your car in to get brakes. So how much are brakes? <laughs> Maybe I don't need brakes. Can we just, like, Fred Flintstone it for a little bit? Like, we're, we're good, sweetie. Like, how much are new tires, really? And then you got a truck. It's like, seriously? That's more than my first car. Like, you got to be kidding me. <clears throat> the air conditioner breaks, or your roof leaks, or the true story, you, the, the new bathroom you put in, the, the toilet breaks, and it leaks, and it destroys the ceiling of the new kitchen you had installed last year. True story. It's expensive, right? Life's expensive. Kids are expensive. I mean, they can just keep eating. They just keep growing. I, 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 this is, I'm not making this up. I think we're on pair of jeans number 12 for my oldest daughter. 
this year alone in the school year. She just keeps growing. She keeps eating, and every week she comes down, and they're like, like she's like swimming in her pants. They're, they're just high water. And I said, what, what is happening? Stop eating. Stop growing. Like, I thought we were leaving the expense behind when my kids grew out of diapers and formula and daycare. It's like, no, no, no. They just keep going. And it just keeps getting more expensive as they get older. Then there's, you know, there's driving and insurance and school. And it's like, how, how am I supposed to keep up with that? Life, life is just expensive. There's cars and there's house and there's vacations. And I get all that. That's, that's all things we, we live with. What am I supposed to do about the problems in the world when my life is so expensive? How, how can I do that? I mean, I, we all want to be generous, right? I think I'm, I'm speaking to a bunch of generous people. We all want to help. But what can I do? And, and life's so expensive. And then we end up having this conversation with ourselves. And, and I know this because I've had this conversation with myself. Right? We begin to say things like this. Well, one day when I'm rich, I've got news for you. <clears throat> you're probably not going to get rich. Or here's, here's the really honest answer. You're probably never going to be rich enough. We always say this. One day when I'm rich, I'll, I'll get involved. One day when I'm rich, I'll do that. One day, one day when I'm rich, I'll help end global poverty. One day when I'm rich, but we never get there. And years, decades, lifetimes go by, and we never do anything. And, and the, the real problem is, is that we just have so much we don't know what to do with. Think of it this way, and I've, you've heard me say this before. If you, if you have a job in America and you make minimum wage, before minimum wage went up, we'll go with like the earlier earlier years, you make more than most people around the world. By global standards, you're wealthy. And I know what you're saying. Yeah, but Jim, you don't know how expensive my life is. I, I do. I've had the same conversations. And there's always another expense. And there's always something else that's going to distract. There's always something else that's going to come up. I know the conversation. The, the, the problem is the, these two things, this, this information overload and life's too expensive, it, it, it leaves us feeling with, okay, well, then what do I do? How do I respond to this? And what I see t tend to creep up in, in most people, especially in America, in most Americans, the first thing that happens is we become indifferent. We become indifferent to all of this information and all of the needs. There's just, everybody wants something. There, there's a, a new thing and a new ministry and, and, and somebody else needs my money. There's just so much. There's another hurricane and another tsunami and another tornado. And, and I, I can't even process all of the needs. I, can't, I don't even know what to do with all the needs. So it's, it's just easier if I don't do Anything. I mean, after all, what can I do? I can't solve that problem. So we read a new story on our phone and, and we say, well, what can I do? Uh, I'm going to go eat dinner. I'm just going to close that app down and open Facebook or Instagram and get happy again. And, and this leads to indifference. Well, if I can't do, if I can't solve the problem, then I'll just do nothing. The second thing that it leads to is inaction. I can't solve that problem, so I guess I just won't do anything. I can't solve that problem across the world or that problem you know, over there you know, in that country or in that neighborhood, so I'll just worry about me and, and myself and my house or my kids or my car or my family. I'll just focus on, on me because I can't solve the rest of the problems. That's what we end up saying to ourselves. Right? We, we say, well, I, we can't solve everything, so we do nothing. And the indifference leads to inaction. You see, only you can say if this is true. 
I know this is going to hit a little close to home for us, but this is what happens. We sit on the side and we say things, but life's expensive and there's cars and there's all these, these, all these requirements on, on, on my time and on my finances. And there's more problems than I even know what to do with. So I'm just going to do nothing. Here's my, my hope for you today. And I'll stop hitting you guys so hard. What I really want to inspire you today is not to do nothing, but to quite literally do something. Do something. I mean, I get it. We're probably not going to end global poverty this morning in Journey Church in Hamden, Maine. I, I totally understand that. But we can do something. And that's something it might seem small to, to, to global standards. It might seem small even to what's happening in your life right now. But that something small has a long-lasting effect. It has a big effect. As a matter of fact, if we do something, even if it's small, it's a big difference to someone else. That's actually how we got involved in compassion. It was a few years ago. It was around Christmas time, and you know, I began to see the, the, the typical thing we see in our, all of our children, perhaps even in us around Christmas. There's this almost this greed that kind of comes out that you didn't know that was there. Like, it's not just good enough to have just a few things on my list, but I need everything, and I want it all, and if you don't give it to me, I'm angry. And I began to see the, the, the typical kind of consumerism and wants, and I, I, I just want more, and I want more. And I thought, you know what? I've got to, like, nip this in the bud. These kids don't even know what's happening. I've been to, to Romania. I know what's happening. <clears throat> so I said, here's what we're going to do. This year, we're going to do something a little different. For Christmas, as a family, we're going to do something for someone else. We're going to try to make somebody else's life better. We're going to sponsor a child. I said, it, it, it might mean we have to make some sacrifices because we've never done this before. And, you know, that money just doesn't show up in your budget. You've got to make some, some sacrifices to make the money available. So I said, that's what we're going to do. We all agreed. I, I kind of sold my kids on it. I'm really good at being persuasive with them, especially when I hold the keys to Christmas. So everybody jumped on board. And I said, okay, we're going <clears> to <throat> go and we're going to pick a child. Um, and we're going to, as a family, we're going to sponsor her. We're going to pray for her. We're going to write her notes. We're going to do what we can to make somebody else's life better this year. So that's what we did. We got online and we found this little girl here. Her name's Frederica. She's uh, from Ghana. She's six years old. And we chose her from uh, Ghana because I had a friend in high school who actually came to the U.S. from Ghana. And I thought, well, I have a connection there. And that's pretty cool. So we'll, uh, you know, sponsor a child from there. And um, my family's always kind of been connected to Africa. My dad spent years in Africa doing missions work. And my youngest brother and sister did short-term mission work in Africa. So it just seemed to, to connect. Like, yeah, that's great. That's what we're going to do. We're going to jump on board, and we're going we're gonna to sponsor Frederica. We have her picture hanging in our kitchen, and we pray for her, and we write her birthday notes, and our kids send pictures, and she sends pictures, and I write letters every once in a while to get an update. And it's, it's been an, an incredible process, and it's been moving. And it's not just moving for her because somebody stepped into to her life, into her situation, and made it better. But it's been moving to me to be a part, to know I'm a part of something that's changing somebody's life forever. See, something small to me has made a big difference to her. And that's what I want for you. As a matter of fact, we were sitting, uh, writing this message this week at my dining room table. And every week when I do that, Bella typically comes in and she wants to know what I'm preaching and get all fired up. What are you preaching on this week? So I I sat down and I showed her and I showed her pictures of other children and how we want to be involved as a church and I want everyone to be involved. And she said, well, Dad, what are we doing about that? And I said, well, you remember, you know, we're sponsoring Frederica. And she said, yeah, 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 but that's only one. That's only one child, Dad. Or, or in, in other words, can't we do more? Maybe we should. Maybe I should. Maybe you should. 
Something small can have a huge difference to someone else. Just do something. And it's pretty small. It's $38 a month. And I know some of you think, that's, that's a lot of money. You know what $38 a month is? It's a meal at Chili's. You know what happens every time you eat a meal at Chili's? I know this because I've used to go to Chili's. I don't go anywhere because I do this. I'd get in the car and I'd say, oh, that was not worth it. <laughs> oh, I, there were so many better options than this. You know, every time I see her picture or I read a note from her, I never think, oh, that's not worth it. Every single time I see her picture, every time I get a note or an update from Compassion, every single time I think, see, that's worth it. Out of all the junk I can spend $38 on, and trust me, ask my wife, I can spend $38 on junk like no one's business. Every time I feel like, man, that's probably not worth it. She's worth it. And that table's filled with children who are worth it. Something small can make a huge difference in somebody else's life if we just be willing to get involved. We're going to look at one of the most famous parables this morning. You knew I wasn't going to leave you without talking about Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus uh, is this master storyteller, but he's so much more than just a storyteller, right? He's, he's the savior. He's the sovereign Lord. But he had this incredible way of crafting stories. And he tells this parable. And a parable is just a fancy word that means to lay alongside something. So here's kind of the idea. Every time Jesus would want to connect with us and teach us some kind of complex theological, like mystery of God kind of a thought, he would lay down this everyday story alongside of it so people like me could understand. He tells this amazing parable, and my guess is you've heard this parable before, whether you've been in church or not. And this may be your first time in church. And if you are, I'm thrilled you're here. And the good news for you is even if it's your first time and somebody dragged you here or you're watching online for the first time, you can be a part of the answer to this problem. Jesus tells this famous parable. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. You may have even heard that before and had no idea that that's actually from Scripture. Jesus is the one who came up with it. He actually tells this, this amazing story, and, and the story picks up with Jesus teaching, as, as he often does. He's teaching crowds of people, and every time he teaches, we've talked about this, there's always crowds with him, and there tends to be kind of three groups of people. There's the people who are nothing like Jesus but love him and, and want to be like him, and, and they're in the crowd. And then there's the people who, who think they're like Jesus, but they're really not, and they kind of hate that the people who are, who are there are nothing like Jesus. And there's this kind of religious, almost animosity, animosity and, and, and anger and kind of hatred towards one another. And then there's the disciples. Jesus is teaching, <clears throat> as he often did. And in this particular case, some guy stands up and kind of butts in and interjects himself into the story. I mean, just imagine, like I'm teaching on a Sunday morning and somebody, one of you just stands up and says, hey, I have a thought. That's kind of how it went. Jesus is teaching. This is what, what the scripture tells us. Luke, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10, it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law, an expert in the law, like a lawyer, kind of butts in because that's what lawyers do. <clears throat> uh, if you're a lawyer, I'm totally kidding. That's actually a joke uh, because that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about a lawyer like litigation law. When he talks about lawyer, he's talking about the expert in their law, which is religious law. He's actually talking about me. He's talking about preachers and about teachers, about people who knew the Mosaic law. He says, an expert in the law, a religious person, he stood up to test Jesus, which is really interesting. He says, teacher, and we're going to stop there before we even move on because he, he's, he's showing Jesus respect. He wants to be respectful. So he stands up to honor Jesus and then he even calls him the right name. He says, rabbi, these are, these are all signs of respect. <clears throat> but as Luke already told us, we know that's not really what's happening, right? This is kind of what religion does in general. 
Religion puts on a good appearance. I want to look good. I want to play the part. But behind the scenes, I'm kind of crafting and working my own thing. I'm, I have this, this other piece that I'm trying to like get in and sneak in. And that's what this religious guy does. He's just following his own religion. He's saying all the right things, doing all the right things on the outside. He stands up, teacher. But he's just doing it to test Jesus. He's doing it to try to trick Jesus. He wants his agenda to be known, and he wants his way to be had. Teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he asked what, what I think is a brilliant question. I think it's a question that all of us ask ourselves at some point in our lives. I, I, if we're really honest, I think we may not ask it this way, but we all ask it, and some of us ask it a lot. We spend our whole lives working, and you, know, you might crush it in, in your job, and you might be doing really well, but at the end of the night, you put your head on the pillow, and you ask yourself this. Is this it? Like, I, really, is this it? I wake up and, and, and I, I eat something and I drive something and then I go do something or I sell something and then I come back, I, you know, driving in something and I eat something again and I watch something and then I go to sleep and I do it again and then I do it again and then I do it again. It's like, is, is this it? Is this the meaning to my life? Surely there must be more. That's kind of what this religious guy is asking. Jesus, there must be more. What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What I love about this is how Jesus answers. He doesn't even really answer the question. He kind, of, he kind of answers the question with another question. His question actually points toward an answer. Jesus responds. He answers the question this way. He says, well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Or in other words, you want to know the key to everlasting life. You want to know the key to eternal life. He said, here's the thing. It's not about how you feel. It's not about what you, know, what you believe or what you grew up believing or how you were raised. Like, no, no, it's not any of that. It's not you know, all of these different roads kind of lead to the same place. No, no, no. The answer's already been given. It's already written. It's already in your Bible or in his world, the Old Covenant. What does your Bible say? What does your Old Covenant say? You're supposed to be an expert in the law. Like, come on, man. You're asking me this? You should know this. What does your Bible say? How do you read it? The lawyer speaks up, and he answers, okay, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, good job. You've answered correctly. Do this. And you will have eternal life. He's like, man, you got it. You nailed it. And, and, and that first part, the, the love your Lord your God, we all say that with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That, that's the, the Shema. That in, in, in like this culture, in this religion, in Judaism, it was like the essence of Judaism. This is from Deuteronomy 6. Like every, every good Jewish boy or Jewish girl knew this. Everybody had this answer memorized. This was so important to them, it was like the John 3.16 of the New Testament. Right? Everybody knows that verse. Everybody knew this. They would actually write it on plaques and nail it on their doorposts. And family would pray. Would pray that prayer like three times a day at least. Everybody knew this. Everybody had that answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus is like, good job. But then he throws in this other part, this part from Leviticus. In Leviticus 19, the, the love your neighbor. And that's the part that, that, that's, that's interesting because he wouldn't have put those things together. The first person to ever put those things together was Jesus. So either he had been following Jesus around to try to trick Jesus, and we know as you read through the Gospels, that's often what religious people did. They would follow Jesus around, they'd listen to what he said, and then they would try to trap him in it. So this guy must have been following Jesus around, he heard Jesus answer, and he kind of jams these two things together. And Jesus is like, great, 
Good job. You got the answer right now. Go and do that. Do this and you will live. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do I have to like raise my hand a certain way in the songs or say a prayer? Or do we have to sponsor kids on Compassion Sunday? Or, you know, I don't go to heaven. I wish just for the sake of those kids, I could tell you yes, but no. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Love God and love your neighbor. See, but he's not satisfied with that. That there's something in him that he's not okay with, with that just being the answer. As a matter of fact, Luke tells us he wanted to justify himself. In other words, I, don't, I know the love the God part, right? I'm a Jewish boy. I was raised being taught how to love God. I get that. But the whole love your neighbor piece, like, like really, Jesus, I don't know that I do a good job there, or maybe I just don't want to do a good job there because that's a lot of work. I can love God. No one can see God. But loving my neighbor, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus, I, I, I got the whole love God piece, but, but my neighbor? See, this is, this is what religion does. It's all an attempt at self-justification. I, I don't think I'm doing a good job at doing this, and I want to do better. So just tell me the, the, the least bit I have to do to be okay. What, what's, I mean, this is like minimalism, like to a T. What's the least I have to do to love somebody, to inherit eternal life? Like, like what's the least? That's not love. You know, when, when the New Testament authors describe God's love with the, the words they use, they use words like lavish. Like he lavishes, his love overflows on us. Love never asks for the minimum. I mean, you know, spouses, husbands and wives, when's the last time you sat down with your spouse and said, what's the least amount of time you need to like spend time together so we're like good? <laughs> And then you can leave me alone and I can go watch football. Like, that's not love. That might be survival. And if you're doing that, you should talk to one of our pastors because <laughs> there's a better way. But that's not love. Love never asks the minimum. I mean, I'm so glad. You know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that it wasn't like, what's the least I have to do for these people? Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus is immediately thinking, you've got the wrong question. So he launches into this famous parable that, that we've, we've all heard. It's the most, one of the most famous parables in all the Bible. In reply, Jesus says this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which he's literally saying he, he actually had to do this because Jerusalem was the highest point in all of Israel. It stood above everything else, and you had to literally walk down from there. It was like 3,300 feet in elevation. So anywhere you went outside of Jerusalem, you were literally going down. So he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is like a 17-mile road, when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. And he's telling this to his audience, and his audience is thinking, yeah, of course that's what happens. We know this road. This is a really windy road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and there's, there's cliffs, and there's big rocks and trees. It's a perfect place for people to hide and attack. As a matter of fact, they would probably say, yeah, that actually happened to my brother. I know that. Like, that happened to a friend of mine. Exactly, Jesus. Of course that would happen. Now, this is just a story. But listen to where he takes this story. A priest happened to be going down the same road. I find it really interesting that the first person Jesus points out and kind of makes fun of or attacks is the priest. A priest, a holy man, is going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And we hear that and we think, how? He's a, he's a religious man. He should be the first one. See, but what's really interesting is I don't think his audience reacted that way. 
As a matter of fact, the religious people in his audience would probably say, yeah, but he probably had really good reason to pass by to the other side. If he's on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho, he's probably spent time in Jerusalem performing all the rituals to be ceremonial clean. It's, it's a big process. He's got to stand in line and pay some money and sacrifice a red heifer. And then the whole thing could take like a week. Like it's a big deal. And then he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, which means he's there to go do something. Like if, if he were to, to stop and see this guy, he could be ceremonially unclean. Because their law states that if you're, you're within six feet of a dead person, you're unclean and you've got to go perform all the rituals again. And I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who's been beaten and, and left for dead or, or half dead. The words of Miracle Max, it's like he's mostly dead. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever seen somebody like that, but, but you don't know they're breathing or they're, they're alive or dead until you get close. So this religious man who just performed all, a whole week making himself clean now has to walk over to this guy who looks dead or mostly dead and are you breathing and push on his chest, feel if there's any air coming out? Like, if he's dead, he's now unclean. And it's 3,300 feet back up the mountain, 17 miles, to then spend a whole other week getting himself clean. There's some really good reasons why this priest would happen to pass by to the other side of the road. I'm sure there are some really good reasons. Jesus continues, so too, a Levite. And Levi is just like a JV priest. He's like a junior priest. <clears throat> the priests come from the line of Aaron. The Levites come from the line of Levi. The Levites are like, they make it to the varsity team but or the junior varsity team, but they'll never make it to the varsity. They'll never be good enough. But they have to do all the things the priest does, and they have to follow all the same rules, but they'll never get the glory. So they have all the same rules as the other priest. The Levite, when he came to pass, <clears throat> he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. And my guess is, if you were to sit down with the Levite and the the, 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 the good guy, the, the, the priest, and you were to kind of do your interview, like, why did you pass by to the other side? I'm guessing they would have so many good reasons and so many good excuses. But, but let me say this. If, if your religion tells you to avoid the, the problem and go to the other side, to avoid humanity and travel around them to avoid the problem, you have the wrong religion. Jesus has never been about self-preservation. He so loved the world that he came and he sacrificed himself for you. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, if you want to be like me, you've got to be willing to get your hands dirty. You've got to run to the mess and not run around the mess and avoid it. But if you were doing this interview, they would say, God, we had so many good reasons. I, you know, I, I just spent a week getting myself clean and I've got so much to do. I've got to get to Jericho and I have a congregation there. I have to perform a wedding. Like I, I've got all these things to do. You can't, I, I can't do this. I'm so busy. There's so much going on in my life. I don't have the time to, to take time. Like, I'm sorry he, he's, he's in pain and he's broken and he's hurt, but let's be honest. There are people in pain and broken hurt all over the world. What can I do? I can't solve his problem. I can't heal all the broken people in the world. And besides that, I don't have enough money. You know how much money it's going to take to get him back on his feet and get somebody, pay somebody to care for him? Like, I, I've got too many things going on in my life, and I've got too many expenses. I don't have the money to help. Besides that, maybe I should focus more on my hometown first. Maybe I should help the people in my town, but you know, I never do that either. I don't know where he's from. I, this could be all his fault. I don't know if he's rolling with like the wrong group of people and he made a bunch of bad decisions and that's what got him there. It could be his own fault. Frankly, I don't even know if he's here legally. Any of those sound familiar? They have all the excuses in the world to not get involved. See, but when you see somebody in need, 
when you see somebody in need, you either make excuses or you make a difference. But you never do both. You can either get involved and make a difference or you can make an excuse. But you're never going to do both. You'll never succeed at both of them. And in your heart of hearts, standing before God, only you can be honest about that answer. Only you can be honest and say, well, am I doing this out of self-preservation? Am I doing this out of some self-righteous thing? Am I just making an excuse to skirt the issue and find another path around? Or am I actually going to get involved? Only you know the answer to that. Edmund Burke was a philosopher. He wrote this statement I absolutely love. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. So back to the story. Guy's on the side of the road. Priest comes by, sees him, walks to the other side to avoid getting ceremonially clean. I kind of imagine he kind of skirts along the cliff wall to make sure they're six feet, because God forbid. Then the Levi, he kind of does the same thing. And Jesus says, but a Samaritan. And I imagine he kind of pauses there just for dramatic effect. And he may even, you know, contort his face, but a Samaritan. And his audience is thinking, oh, God, no. Like, Jesus, we weren't sure where you were going with this. We, like, the Levite isn't the hero. The, the priest isn't the hero. Please don't tell me the Samaritan. Like, not any, anybody but the Samaritan. You see, we hear this story and we hear Samaritan. We say, well, that's a good thing because we know where the story goes and how it ends. When they heard it, they were just filled with hate and animosity. Samaritans <clears throat> were this group of people that on the day of exile, there was this remnant left in Israel. And they began to marry and intermarry and remarry and, and kind of intermingle their religion and craft their own religion with this pagan culture. And it, it became this kind of twisted form of, of religion, of Judaism. So the, the, the true, the, the pure religious Jews, when they came back, they hated these people. I mean, think of like racism that's rampant in America. And I get it. It's bad and it's rampant. Multiply that by like two or 3,000 years and you begin to understand the hate that these people had for one another. Anybody but a Samaritan Jesus. We would have taken the, the, the dirty, the, you know, arrogant, self-righteous priest, not the Samaritan. But a Samaritan comes along. Another translation says, when the Samaritan came along, he saw the man, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Another translation says compassion. He had compassion on him. You see, what's interesting is compassion isn't a feeling. It's not just a feeling. Compassion is a feeling that leads to action. It's interesting that when we look at, for God so loved the world, when he looked at the world and he had took pity on the world, he felt compassion for the world. I'm so glad he didn't say, well, God so loved the world that he felt. Or God so loved the world that he just said. God so loved the world that he did. He did something. He sent his son into the world to pay the price for us so that we could be healed. The Samaritan man saw a man bleeding on the side of the road, had no idea where he was from, no idea of his background, no idea if he even deserved it. He just knew he needed to get involved. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave that to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He didn't make excuses. He just made a difference. Jesus asked, well, which of these two, which of these three rather do you think was a neighbor 
to this man who fell into the hands of the robbers. What's really interesting is, is back to the original question. Jesus, who's my neighbor? It's like Jesus is asking, no, no, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking at doing the, the least amount possible. That's not the right question. The right question is, is Jesus, how can I be a better neighbor? He said, and the answer to that question is by being a neighbor to everyone around you. That's why at Journey, we, we want to be in it. We don't ask where you're from. We don't ask, well, you know, you're not part of our group and you're, you're not part of, of what we're doing. We, we, don't, we, we, we don't care where you're from or who you're from or what you look like or what food you eat or where you're like. None of that matters because all people matter to God. Jesus said, you want to be like me? Love God and love your neighbor. <laughs> Who's my neighbor? Anyone around you. Everyone around you. You want to know how to be a better neighbor? Then be neighborly to anyone around you. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Of course, Jesus said, good. Now go and do likewise. Back to his original point. You want to know how to inherit eternal life? Love God and love people. They're two. It's not one. It's not the other. It's love God. And when you begin to follow Jesus and you begin to experience the, the lavish love of God on your life, that love begins to overflow and you begin to love the people around you. He said, this is what I want you to do. Just love God and learn to love other people. There are three types of characters in this story who, who are involved in this man's restoration. Right? There's the man who's broken, there's the innkeeper, and there's the three people who pass by. <clears throat> when we look at this story, the man who's broken could represent a child in need. Somebody who's desperate for somebody else to get involved. Their healing, their restoration, their life depends on it. You know, the only good excuse for, for somebody in our position to not get involved is because we just don't know. Right? I, I, just, I never knew, I had no idea there was such a need. This morning, I want to take that excuse away. I'm going to show you a quick video from Compassion, and then I'm going to be back up, and we'll conclude the service. God wants us to help other kids so we can make a difference, so that people in other countries have exactly all that we, they need. This is our story of sponsoring a child with Compassion. So let's start off with compassion. Compassion is a thing that helps other kids develop and get what they need and stuff. And the Bible is pretty clear that generosity is not about how much you have, it's about what you do with what you have. I remember our pastor at our church sharing about how if you don't have to walk to work every day and you have a car, like you are like one of the wealthiest people in the world. That perspective made me realize how much I really have. And I realized that it was really important that we start being generous. You know, we wanted to sponsor a child. And so we looked with Evie and picked out a, a child whose birthday was, was kind of close to hers. So they were around the same age and, and it was a girl also and her name is Marabella, and she's from the Philippines. Um, Marabella is six. She likes singing. She also likes drawing, I think. Understanding the concept of poverty isn't personal until you put a face to it 
And compassion put a face to poverty and a child's name to poverty. And um, it became this huge concept that's just out there somewhere and gave us an actual person to impact. So they, so Mirabella's year was like they had hurricanes. Hurricanes over there, typhoons over there. It made me want to help them because when I think about things that I didn't really like or times where it was hard, I think about poverty and how hard poverty would be. And I, and I thought, I wonder how these people feel. I was in the kitchen and Evie woke up and came in the kitchen and she, she literally walked out of her bedroom with this idea pretty much fully formed to the degree that she shared with me, Dad, I had this idea that um, I, could, I could draw pictures, me and my friends could draw pictures, and then people could buy the pictures for a dollar, and then we could send that money to people who are poor. I hoped that it would make a difference that I'd make enough art to raise $500. You know, she came out of her bedroom thinking about someone else, which is huge for a child to do, and then thinking, what do I have? What, what ability, what assets do I have that I can use to make a difference? So, you know, we thought that getting involved with Compassion, sponsoring a child, we were going to be making a difference. And what we found is that through, through that, Compassion has given us um, a story and this purpose. Well, God wants us to do our gifts because He wants to make the world a better place and a better place for other people. Um, we don't consider ourselves as having very much, but um, because we had this uh, priority, both of, of the type of family we wanted to be, the type of people we wanted to be as followers of Jesus, as parents, um, Jesus said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's gonna be. And so um, you have to move your treasure around to put your heart in the right place. As people are thinking about whether to sponsor a child, I want to tell everybody, like, do it. Like, it's gonna change your life. Like, you need to do it. So the blue is the sad kid, because he doesn't have enough of what he needs. They need food, water, and medical service, and shelter. And the yellow is the happy kid, because he has enough of what he needs, and he's been sponsored. We can all show kids the love of Jesus. Sponsor a child and make a difference. So before today, you may have been able to say, I, I didn't know. You do now. The excuse has been taken away from you. Every one of these child represents an actual child who's in need. Some of the poorest people in our world. 22,000 children. I'm going to read you some, stat, some statistics. 22,000 children die every day from a preventable disease. A disease like diarrhea. We get diarrhea and it's like, oh God, this isn't awesome. And then we run to Walgreens, and it's like, it's still not awesome, but I don't die. They die. 1.8 billion live on less than $1.25 a day. 11 children under the age of five die every single minute. And 35 mothers die every single hour giving birth to a child. And the problem with statistics is, is you can just hear them and you move on. You don't see them. You don't put a face to them. Today you did. They're like the man in need, waiting for somebody to step in and save their life. The next person in the story is the innkeeper. 
the innkeeper had the ability to do things the Good Samaritan didn't. He wasn't set up to, to care for this man long-term, but the innkeeper had a place for them to stay and had, had the resources to provide care to make sure that this man was nursed back to health. That's like Compassion International. Compassion International is, is this grassroots organization that has made it their, their mission to end childhood poverty in Jesus' name. They started around the, the Korean War, and, and it's like this holistic childhood approach. They give them care and medicine and education and food. They give them skills. They teach them how to develop skills so that they can be employed and make something more of their life. When they sit down and they say, is this it? The answer is no. There is so much more, and Compassion equips them to do that. And then the best part, they bring the gospel to these children. They bring life where there was death. They quite literally save a life. And then the next people in the story were the three that passed by. And that's us. And the question for us today is, who are we going to be like? Are we going to be like the first two that, that, that saw the man and saw the need and made excuses and passed by? Or are we going to be like the Samaritan who saw the need and made a difference? Are we going to have compassion? Or are we going to say, somebody else, I can't do anything about that. It's too expensive. See, the choice is up to you. But here, here's what you need to know. Is that God didn't give you everything you have <clears throat> so that you would have everything you want. But so that others would have everything they need. See, the, the, the truest sense, uh, uh, the truest meaning of this parable is not, you know, the compassion story. That's just good teaching in my books. The truest meaning of the parable is that we were like the man who's broken. And Jesus was like the good Samaritan who came by and saw us in need and out of compassion responded. But he didn't go to the innkeeper to pay the innkeeper. He went to the cross and paid for our healing. And as people who have experienced that goodness and that love, how do we look at a broken world and sit back with indifference and inaction and say, but what can I do? You can get involved. Here's What if this child was your child? What if it was your niece or your nephew? You know what the only difference is between us and our kids and, and the people represented on, in that video or on these cards? Where you were born. That's like the only difference. Some of these parents work multiple jobs and do everything they can, because, but because of a, a, a twisted system and a, and a crooked government and a broken world, they can't make the difference they want. And they're just crying out, would somebody else help? What if these were your kids? And what if you knew today around the world there were a bunch of people who, who followed Jesus, who wanted to love God and love people, and they were gathering to decide, what, what would we do with, this, with, this, with these kids, with these families? What would you want them to do if it was your child on here? That's what you should do. Just do that. Just get involved. Just do something. Because something makes a big difference to someone else. So here's what we're going to do. Chris is going to come up and he's going to sing some worship songs and going to give you a chance to, to respond in your heart first. As much as I want to persuade you, I don't want you to do this out of, out of pressure and then regret it in a week. I want you to think and I want you to pray and I want you to respond. For those of you online, our host is going to post a link 
at any point through the worship service or at the end, if you want to respond, I'll be back at the table. The link's available to you. Here's what I want you to do. Three things. I want you to grab a packet. I want you to fill it out, and I want you to turn it in. What would you do if it was your child? What would Jesus do if it were you? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, God, for an incredible organization like Compassion God, who is literally making an eternal difference, God, a huge, a significant difference in this world. God, and we get to be a part of that. We get to partner with them. We get to to make it a, a part of our responsibility, God, and not just that, but to experience the joy of giving, the joy of generosity, the joy of knowing, God, that we can be involved in seeing somebody's life eternally changed forever. God, I thank you so much for this opportunity. And I pray for every person that's hearing this message, God, whether it's, it's live today, Sunday morning, and they're here, or they're listening to it later in the week or in their car on a podcast, whatever form that they hear this, God, that they would be so inspired and so inclined to take that step. God, God to, to find a child, to, to, to fill out that packet, God, to sponsor a child, to do, God, what might even seem like a little now, but that has so much of a difference for them. God, would you give them the courage to take that step? In Jesus' name I pray. Be with us, Lord, and all we do say and think. Let us bring glory to you. Amen.